Mel. Hey, good to see you. Well, sometimes you're weird being up here on this platform. Sometimes I feel like you should just be down, you know, in a circle. I could just sit in the circle with everyone. Um, my name is Grant. I'm pleasure and privilege of being a pastor here for coming on for four years. And what a strange and wonderful adventure it has been, right? Um, if uh, we have recorded these messages, so if you're listening online, we love you. And uh, we're glad you're listening. <clears throat> I just want to remind you, you can pause the message and get yourself a little something to drink, like grape juice or whatever, potentially wine perhaps. We'll leave it up to you and some bread and pause it because we're going to take communion and that will also be on the recording. Uh, we're going to do that today. So everyone should have one of these little things. When it gets to that point, I'm going to ask everyone, you can raise your hand and someone will bring you one if you don't have one at that point. Um, and then we're going to do this really scary thing that we did last week. Would anyone like to read the scripture for this week's message, because this is, this is the work of the people, right? This is what this service, why it's called the service is because we all come and we serve, right? So I'm going to bring us over to my dear friend, Marian, and she's going to read this morning's text from the Gospel of Mark. Thanks, Marian. I'm good. They arrived again in Jerusalem. Is it working? They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say, from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say, of human origin, they feared the people, for everyone held that John was really a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. So what is your experience of authority, the concept of authority? I mean, maybe it starts quite young with parents, right? They were an early authority. If you're a kid in the room right now, right? Parents, the authority. I see uh, the Joneses down there. Um, what about uh, teachers? There's an authority in education. Or law enforcement. When's the last time you got a ticket? Anyone get a ticket this week? No? So uh, there's a th all kinds of authorities. Perhaps we don't ever think about it that much. We don't think about authority. We just kind of take it for granted. Occasionally, it will, it will kind of connect with our lives, but it is an integral part of human life, and whose authority we place ourselves under can have really far-reaching effects, both for good and for bad. And the question that we want to ask today is, as it was asked of, of Jesus by these leaders, who or what was the authority in Jesus' life, and what might that mean for us? Because this is the message we're looking at, is the Gospel of Mark. This is Jesus, and we think that in doing and discovering who Jesus is, we will find for ourselves life and hope and a purpose. And so the world uh, of, of authority in Jesus' life was very complicated. It was a very difficult to unravel and understand and complex world. It kind of reminds me about my struggles to learn about Scottish history, which I, when I lived in Scotland, I was not that interested in the Scottish history, to tell you the truth, you know? It was just kind of Scotland, right? But when I left Scotland, I suddenly became all interested in Scottish history, partly because Americans kept asking me questions about Scotland, and I didn't seem to know the answers to them. Um, so 
I was trying to understand, and there's so much complexity, and many of the kings have the same names, which is not easy to understand either. Lots of bloodshed and jockeying for power. And I read a few books that never made it all the way through until my dad uh, sent me a book entitled The History of Scotland for Children. And it suddenly all made sense. But really, similarly, the first century in Jesus' time was extremely complex. All these layers of hierarchy and power and authority. There were Pharisees and Sadducees and priests and governors and kings, consuls, proconsuls, tetrarchs, zealots, emperors, teachers, prophets, rabbis, etc., etc. There were six different Herods in the Gospels and Acts, six different Herods. So I'm grateful for the work of these historians and scholars who have pieced together uh, for someone like me. But also in Mark's Gospel, he's a pretty good historian himself, and he gives us a lot of idea about the power and the authority of Jesus' day. So let's take a look at the passage and think, what authorities do we detect? Because that's what Scripture reading is all about. You know, we pray, we trust that God's going to guide us, and then we look, we observe, we spend time with the passage, we ask questions. And one question to ask when it comes to authority is, what's happening in this passage? What do we see as far as the functioning of authority? And there are several layers in this passage. And right at the beginning, we hear about some. And the first is the chief priests, the chief priests. They arrived again in Jerusalem while Jesus was walking in the temple courts. The chief priests, they came to him. So this is about the sacrificial system. These priests oversaw all of the giving of sacrifice. Remember, we're in the Passover time when this was a great pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and it was this commemoration of the time when the people had been freed from slavery in Egypt, and many sacrifices would be offered in thanksgiving to God. So these people were the gatekeepers. They were the gatekeepers to God. They stood in, in the presence of somehow between people and God, and they would intercede for them. They were the gatekeepers. Second people are the teachers of the law. Teachers of the law came with them. Elsewhere, they're called scribes. Scribes. Uh, they were the lawmakers. So the first ones were the gatekeepers. These people are the lawmakers. So they would, they would present teaching on what the law said, how to be right with God. They talk about how to be righteous. What is righteousness when it comes to God? And so they were the lawmakers. But they had added a whole bunch of things that we've discovered, right? All kinds of laws and rules that they had tried to uh, bring to bear on the people. Third people, the elders. We have elders at New Song Church. Does anyone know who our elders are? Any elders here? Raise your hand if you're willing. What's that? Oh, your husband is an elder. Yes, he's getting you a coffee. <laughs> Servant leadership, ladies and gentlemen. Can you get me a coffee too? So the elders, who were these people? Well, these were men, respected men, respectable perhaps even. And it was very much tied up with the politics and the religious time. They were the power brokers. So we could say the first people were the gatekeepers. Then we have the lawmakers. And now we have the movers and the shakers. These were the people of the community that had a lot of authority and power. And these three groups together made up this group of 71 men who were given the name the Sanhedrin. And this was the complete power of the, of the Jewish religion at that time. Okay, so we see this, the Jewish religious leaders, the, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Well, secondly, or actually fourthly, really, if you think about it, Rome. Was Rome a power during this time? Was Rome an authority during this time? It's interesting. Rome is not mentioned in this text at all, but it is at other points through the Gospel of Mark. And Rome is always the unseen, ever-present yet, powerful force 
in all of the gospel stories and on into the, the book of Acts. They were powerful. There was this thing called the Pax Romana, which meant the Roman peace. And on the surface, it might have looked like peace, but it was, it was kept uh, in place with a lot of violence. All, complete authority. A Roman soldier, to anyone except a Roman citizen, could pretty much do as they wished. They could extort money. There was all kinds of stuff happening. Okay, the next layer of power in this passage that we see is the people. Do people have power? in large numbers. We see this kind of hinted at in verse 32 where it says that these religious leaders, they wanted to do things. They wanted to remove Jesus from the picture, but it says when Jesus asked this question, they feared the people for everyone held that John really was a prophet. They were fearful of the mass of people. Uh, There's a guy, a a writer from Egypt who was part of a a lot of uh, writing about... um, the abuse of power in Egypt, I should try and pronounce his name, shouldn't I? It's Wa'il Ghanim, okay? There we go. And he said, the power of people is greater than the people in power. That's interesting, isn't it? The power of people is greater than the people in power. Because even though individually these people were relatively powerless, collectively they were a huge influencer of authority in that time. Because the Jewish religious people were concerned about creating any kind of fuss or revolutionary stuff happening because they had to take care that the Romans were not going to be giving too much attention to what they were doing. Uh, And even the Roman governor Pilate, he was concerned about the wishes of the people. So when you get to the point in this story when Jesus is going to be crucified, Pilate actually goes to the people and says, what do you want me to do? Release this man, your king? Right? Power. So a lot of complexity. And and further made complex by a kind of cultural situation of honor and shame, that there was a real, your, your honor in this type, of, in this culture was very important, and you would have to exercise your authority, being careful not to be shown up by anyone else. You would always try and keep that uh, sense of honor for yourself. Okay, so much for the complex world of first century Palestine. What about us? Who or what is the primary authority in your life? Who or what? Have you ever thought about it? To what or to whom do you pay most attention when it comes to what is authoritative in your life? Who or what validates and affirms your life? You know, we are all possessors of authority, if you think about it. And we're also all in some way under authority. You know, and you may not think that you have any authority. For some of us, it feels like in daily life we have very little power or authority. But at the very least, you have responsibility for your own life, your words, your actions, your choices. You have authority. We have laws. <laughs> Someone just pointed to their wife in answer to that question. Yeah, man, I hear you. I hear you, brother. Servant leadership. But, you know, we also we have laws in this land, right? We have, we, we, you know, we just drove to Arizona, Ron and myself, and, you know, when we saw on the Waze app that there was a police car up ahead, you can bet Ron has slowed down from 90 to something more like 65. <laughs> Because there's laws, right? There's authority, and it is upheld sporadically. And, you know, uh, political power, legal. You know, we actually have the same kinds of authorities that there are in this story. Religious authority. You know, I kind of stand in this place. Like, even this platform kind of says something that maybe I have an authoritative place. I'm going to talk a bit about that in a minute, you know, how that can be healthy. There's political authority And then also, think about this, in your life, there is the ever-present authority of the people. 
the nameless group of people whose opinions seem to matter so much to so many of us that it disables us in making choices sometimes, right? Or directs us to make choices that we maybe wouldn't otherwise do because we're people pleasers. Do you guys like me, by the way? <laughs> please, please say you do. The crowd, man. Perhaps this is also, this concept of authority is also very hard for us to navigate, not just for Jesus or the people of his day. But is Jesus' message that there's only one authority to which we should submit as a priority. And if we do so, all the other authorities will find their proper and best place in our lives. And we will more adequately be able to love God and love other people. You know, our sermon series, as we said, is called This is Jesus. And our mission statement over there talks about following Jesus. And that's our focus so in a world filled with all kinds of authorities, both complex in that day and complex in our day and very similar, who was Jesus paying attention to most? What was the authority in his life? Have you ever heard of the expression dramatic irony? I, I learned this in, in English in high school. And it's basically when there's a play happening on the stage in front of the audience, the audience often understands things that the people acting in the play do not. It's called dramatic irony, right? So you're watching this play happen, whether it's the kind of comedy side of like, he's behind you, right? Like pantomime. Do you guys have pantomime here at Christmas time? No, sorry, I, culturally I always mess up with that stuff, right? Or, or like another play where like Shakespeare all the time, we know what's happening, but the people on the stage don't. Well, sometimes reading the Bible, we, you know, we've got to realize we understand the full story. So you'd say, what authority was Jesus following? God, right? But the people in this passage didn't really understand that fully, did they? You know, God has come in the flesh amongst these people. And it's easier for us to jump to the right answer all the time. It's good for us maybe to linger. What does it look like for this just to be unfolding as Mark unfolds it to us uh, as it was to the people in that day? You know, interesting enough, I think that you could look at the authorities of that day and what they choose to do is fairly predictable, isn't it? You know, if their power is threatened, they're going to try and shut it down. You know, it's pretty predictable. But Jesus, all through the Gospel of Mark, seems to march to the beat of a different drummer. He's unpredictable, isn't he? There's something really different about Jesus. And just when people think they've figured him out, he takes a sharp turn in a different direction. You know, so in Mark's Gospel, Jesus comes into this context, right, under authority to God, and it's inevitable that he is going to bash up against all these other powers and authorities. What does that look like for him? What might that look like for us if we place our trust and make God the primary authority in our lives? So here's the thing. As Jesus did that, we are included in that story. As he interrupted and opposed or um, somehow subverted or challenged the authorities of that day, as he followed the overarching authority of God, he has reordered things in creation for us and opened up a beautiful new way to be human when it comes to the concept of authority. So we, we, we talked about these people that we see in the passage who had different kinds of authority. How did Jesus engage with them given that he was following a path under the authority of God? First people, the Jewish religious and political leaders. What happened when the authority of God manifest through Jesus met with these men? So they arrived in Jerusalem. Jesus was walking the temple. The chief priests, the teachers of the law, the elders came to him. Remember we said these were the gatekeepers? 
the lawmakers and the movers and shakers. We've read a lot of Mark up to this point, haven't we? How's it been with these guys for Jesus? It's been pretty good, right? All cozy? All cozy and cuddly? <laughs> no, it's been hard. We've seen him do things like heal on the Sabbath, which they were very upset about. They asked, why are your disciples not fasting? This is not right. Why are your disciples not washing their hands at the appropriate times? And then he comes now. And the question that they ask, who gives you authority to do these things, is probably referring to the temple thing that we heard about last week where he came in and was horrified to see how the temple, and especially the place where the Gentiles, the nations were to come and encounter God, had become a market of extortion and commercialism, and he chased them out. So authority, he came in and he did something to confront how toxic this religious authority had become for the people. And it was radical what they saw him doing, and it angered them greatly. What about Rome? You know, perhaps, I don't know, did anyone, was anyone here? <laughs> and for the very first Mark sermon, or listened to online, it was online, I think, right? Way back at the beginning, uh, Rome appeared very quickly at the start. Because Mark begins his gospel with these words, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And here's the remarkable thing. You know, once again, thanks to scholars and people who look at documents that were uh, on the, from the same era as the Gospel of Mark, for example, we start to see some things that are very controversial that Mark was pointing towards. And one of these is there was actually a document written in Roman culture that had the very same words in it. And here's what it says. We're going to compare the two. So Mark says, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. This Roman document says, the beginning of the good news, and it's the same exact word in Greek for gospel, for the world. And what this is referring to, the beginning was Caesar Augustus' birthday, so in this Roman culture that is always present, it's the power, it's the authority. Mark begins his story about God, uh, Jesus following the purposes and plan of God with this direct correlation to a document that said that Caesar was the one who was going to bring the good news and the gospel to all the world. And so this inscription continues, the providence which has ordered the whole of our lives has ordained the most perfect consummation for human life by giving to it Caesar Augustus by sending in him, as it were, a savior for us and those who come after us. Isn't that remarkable? That Jesus steps in and subverts this overarching sense that Rome is the savior and that Caesar is the savior. So what about the people? How did the authority of the people connect with Jesus who was coming with a single-minded devotion to God being the authority for his life? You know, one of the greatest lessons of Mark's gospel is that people are painfully inconsistent would you agree with that? Being a people yourself and seeing this? What happened last week? Was it two weeks ago? Yeah, the people, what were they shouting? Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the king. What are they going to be shouting in just a, a few short days? They're going to shout, crucify him. Crucify him. So Jesus comes into this world and he loves people, right? But he is not a people pleaser. He doesn't seek the adoration and the, the thumbs up of the crowd to do the things that he is doing. 
So Jesus, but, but we say like, Jesus is God in the flesh, right? So how does that work for us? And that's exactly what this thing was about. This, this thing in the middle of, of the, the story about the questioning that these leaders brought to Jesus and said, who gave you the authority to do these things? And by what authority do you do these things? And Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. And he put them in a real bind at this point. And this is kind of the, the key where this authority of God in this passage becomes the authority of Jesus. The authority to come in and subvert the religious practices. The authority to come in riding in a, in a manner of peace into the city, but to bring a revolution that will not just kick the Romans out with violence, but will transform the hearts of the people back to the God who calls them to himself. So what he's saying here is, is very, very clever. Okay, John's baptism. He didn't answer the question, did he say, God? He said, John's baptism, who do you think authorized that? And it says that they didn't really know what to say, right? They say, if we say from heaven, they're going to say, well, why didn't you believe him then? And if they say, uh, you know, from man, then the people, remember the power of the people, they're going to be mad at us because they believe that John was a prophet, and what is connecting here is that through this story and this question and Jesus' refusal to answer it and their inability to do so is that who baptized Jesus? John baptized Jesus, right? What happened at that point? There was a voice and it said, this is my son, my beloved son. And the spirit came upon Jesus. And at that moment, it was fully manifest for those that Jesus was now coming in authority. He was the authority. He was God in the flesh come to his people. But what is so amazing about Jesus, and we see it in this gospel, and even the cleansing of the temple, there's a real difference between authority and authoritarianism. Jesus came as the authority, but he didn't need to prove it. He didn't need to prove it. He didn't need to be pushy. He didn't need to be argumentative. He came in and he called people to faith that they would see that he was the one who was promised. He was the one they needed. Uh, one of the commentaries I read this week, Lamar Williamson wrote, the power of God's word is not one of outer compulsion, but one of inner demand. And that's what he's doing with these people He's hoping that they will somehow make that transference from this understanding of God as an authority to Jesus being the one that they need to follow. So once again, I ask, who's the primary authority in your life? And don't point to your wife this time, okay? Who's the primary authority in your life? Or don't you know? Or have you never really considered it? And if it's you... Because I think many of us would say that I'm the primary authority in my life. Then how does that look? What does that look like in real time and practicality? How good a boss are you to yourself? You know, the great theologian Robert Allen Zimmerman, otherwise known as Bob Dylan, wrote a song on his Slow Train Coming record. And it says, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, 
but you're going to have to serve somebody. There is authority in this life. And sometimes it's simply just me, myself, and I, I am the authority. What might it look like to maintain God as the authority of my life? Is it better than any other if I prioritize that and say, as Jesus did, Father, your will be done, not my will be done. Let's think about these categories again, okay? Let's think about religion. You know, like I said, I'm a pastor, right? Uh, Ron and I were in Sedona just this week, past week, for a rescheduled uh, anniversary getaway. It was really wonderful. What a beautiful place. God's creation, man. We went to the Grand Canyon for the first time. Whoa. Crazy. Um, but we met a young woman on the trail, traveling by herself. Her father died two years ago. She had a horrible divorce. She was raised in Utah in a very, very legalistic religious community, and she was broken by it all. And, and I'm walking along, and I was like, you know, hearts went out to her because she'd basically, she'd shaved her hair off, to, to just, just changing everything. She bought a van. She's traveling by herself trying to figure out, who am I? And I'm a pastor. And I was terrified in some ways to say, hey, let me tell you what you should do. I'm a pastor. But, but you know, I thought, well, this is obviously a big you know, moment. <laughs> God's brought this young woman. We're traveling. Ron and I were walking, hiking this trail. I want a chance to talk. But I did tell her. But I, I confess that sometimes I'm horrified by how we bring our authority as pastors and religious leaders into people's lives and get right in the way of God. We have something beautiful in Jesus. That he is the priest. He is the prophet. He is the king. And, and there is no need anymore for some intercessory person like me to take you there. That's beautiful. There's freedom, religious freedom. We are free from condemnation. We have grace. We have a connection with God through Jesus. He is the one who has come for us. What about political? Political. You guys have all different political perspectives, I'm sure. And if we, like, could talk about them right now, we'd get in a big argument, maybe. But what about if in our politics we say there is a greater authority? This is all below this. Like I said one time before, every political system, structure, party, leader passed away, and they all will pass away. But God is the one who will remain and if we put him first, we will start to have a, a healthier understanding of what it means to be in a world of politics. And we might love one another more deeply and not break the unity that we have in Christ for something that is, uh, that is lesser. That's a beautiful thing. Legal. What about legal? Well, one thing I'll tell you, if you let God your authority, you might get less in trouble with the law. At times, you know, law's not perfect. You still might get wrongly accused of something, and many, many people have done so. But there is a, there is a power and authority in Christ that can cause us to be people who get in the right kinds of trouble, right? Did Jesus stay out of trouble? No, but he got in the right kinds of trouble. And sometimes it is right to stand up against injustice, and get in trouble because God is your authority, right? What about other people's opinions? All this other stuff seems a little highfalutin, like, you know, a high level, but I know this one is real. Other people's opinions. How many of us struggle with people-pleasing? Anyone? The rest of you, I'm just like, do you like me again? 
There's something beautiful about Jesus, the way he kind of goes through life with people. He's, he loves them, but he is not seeking to please every one of them. And I think we struggle so greatly with that, but we say, God, you're my authority. Then I think a byproduct of that is you will please a lot of the people a lot of the time because you'll be better able to love them. Freedom, freedom from fear of what other people think. You know, let me tell you, kind of lastly, if you do this and you seek to do this with your life, people will think you are weird. Like this picture. That's you following Jesus. People will think you're kind of weird. You know, there's a, there's a really cool book called Two Christian, Two Pagan that a friend of mine wrote. And the point is that if you seek to follow Christ, make that your priority, you will often be too pagan for your Christian friends, and you will often be too Christian for your pagan friends, and you're going to walk this weird, different road, right, if you're trying to follow Jesus, because that's exactly what he was doing. You know, he confounded people's expectations at every turn. John chapter 3, verse 8. Remember, John is one of his disciples who walked with him. Uh, he records what Jesus said, which I think really tells us how weird this might be, right? He says, the wind blows. Jesus said, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from, where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. And that's where it begins. Even our, our uh, statement here says, follow Jesus, love people, do good. And it says, to be transformed by the Holy Spirit. And that, that is the door into this sort of authority. It's not something you can just muster up or a contract that you will sign. It is a heart's decision. And as I said, he doesn't compel you. There's an inner desire. And, and if you're feeling that, I would suggest that you say, hey, wow, in the complicated world of all the authorities, and I am the biggest tyrant of all in my life, and so often it doesn't go right. I give you my life. You are the Lord. I want to follow you. Finally, way back in Joshua in the Old Testament, Joshua said to the people who had been freed from Egypt, this Passover celebration that is happening in the story that we just read, this, is, this happens just after the actual event of the, of the freedom, the exodus from Egypt. And Joshua says, if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve whether the gods your ancestors serve beyond the Euphrates or the gods the Amorites, in whose land you're living, but as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Imperfectly, amen? But that's our desire. That's what we're here for, to encourage one another in that path, to be gentle, servant leadership, right? We're going to take communion now as a way of responding. Because once again, this is the place where we are invited to the table. It doesn't matter who you are. If you want to enter into this story and make it part of your story, this is an opportunity with a very physical, tangible thing to partake in a meal. Isn't eating with people one of the most unitive and beautiful things that you can do? That was a highlight of my time with Ron away was eating good food together. And, you know, and this is what we're doing. Jesus invited his friends to the table, imperfect as they were, potentially betraying as they were, doubting, denying. And he said, come and eat with me.
Let's open the bread side. Following the authority of God, Jesus shows us, can cost us, will cost us. But the most incredible thing is that the one who had all the power, all the authority, set aside that power and gave his life for us. And we commemorate this. We say, thank you, Lord, that we will never be cast away because you were set in that place for us, but you rose again from the grave. And we take this to remember And we take the cup and we declare that it has power and has exercised power to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that we can live with confidence, with courage, that we can be bold knowing that we are forgiven, that we are free of condemnation and shame. And Father, Lord, we thank you for the great sacrifice that frees us, frees us uh, into service for your kingdom. Amen.